Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our In this episode, we take a look at the revolving door amongst governments and how this facilitated the corruption that Wirecard engaged in, with some porn thrown in. I know you'll enjoy that. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon for another episode in the Wirecard Sagas. Mikhail, what do you have for us this week? Oh, Tom, here we go with episode 17, and the card never lets us down. Okay, let's open with what happened over the weekend. And and just listeners, we, you know, we post this on Wednesdays, but I record this on Monday. So this news literally happened in the past 48 hours. On Saturday night, that's January 23rd, Austrian federal police arrested two individuals. Ready? Arrest number one, former MP and FPO party member Thomas Schellenbacher. Now, if you've forgotten our lesson in Austrian political parties, go back to episode 7 and 11. But the FPO is Austria's far-right freedom party. They are the ones with a very tight relationship with Russia. Okay, Thomas Schellenbacher was arrested. And arrestee number two, the head of the espionage unit of Austria's BVT, right? This is the agency Marsalek was working for. Uh, so that guy, Martin Weiss. Okay, again, back to episode seven, if you've forgotten any of these people and players. Why are these arrests of these two significant? Because Austrian federal prosecutors accused this pair of having assisted Marsalek in his escape to Belarus and then on to Russia. But it is more sordid than just having assisted someone who is at the time not yet a fugitive from justice. Oh, it is so much grubbier. Okay, ready? Austrian news outlet Zaksak scooped this story on Saturday night, complete with photos of Schellenbacher doing the perp walk. Now, Schellenbacher is said to have already confessed to assisting Marsalek Flea just days before the Munich prosecutors were closing in with their uh, arrest warrant for, right, for Marsalek. Schellenbacher, Weiss, and two pilots for, who were piloting a private Cessna Citation, a Mustang 510, if anybody cares, are accused of helping pull off Marsalek's escape, right? And they organized this the night of June 18th, 2020. Marsalek had traveled to Vienna and had dinner with Weiss. Now, the actual escape is actually fairly dull. It's pretty tedious. You know, Marsalek took a taxi to a private airfield at Bad Voslau outside Vienna and Vienna's got a number of private airfields, and then paid the pilots cash to fly him to Belarus. However, the arrest warrants clearly place Marsalek in the position of, quote, client to Schellenbacher and Weiss. Perhaps one of the funniest quotes came from Schellenbacher, who, and this appeared in the prosecutor's report. Schellenbacher, speaking of helping to arrange the flight, which Weiss boarded, and more on him in a minute. Schellenbacher said, quote, 
of course we had noticed that it stinks at Wirecard. Vice asked me to arrange a flight from Marsalik to Minsk. I did it, but I already had my, uh, my concerns. I've already got my ass aground, as they say, because I thought there was something wrong. <laughs> Is this a teachable moment? Trust your gut feeling lest you find your ass run aground. Uh, but it is what Vice and some other officers at the BVT were also being investigated. That's what's really interesting. Vice and several employees of the BAT unit within the BVT are accused by prosecutors of extorting money from porn site operators who were customers of Wirecard. These guys were using personal data they collected from the porn site clients of Wirecard to demand, quote, overpayment for services. They were essentially blackmailing them. Now, the Austrian prosecutor's office is investigating these BVT folks, including the head of the unit vice, for bribery and abuse of official position. But it's even more fun than that because Marsalik wasn't just giving data about the porn site customers to the BVT guys. No, the BVT guys were feeding intelligence about certain folks in foreign governments and the porn site operators, not necessarily one and the same, back to Wirecard managers, plural. Managers, plural. Marsalik would hand appoint key Wirecard managers to receive and provide information, which he then brokered back to the Austrian government officials. Weiss, the head of intelligence unit at the BVT, was Marsalik's source. Wirecard in had information about dirty deeds perpetrated by various and sundry, because after all, they were money laundering. So porn barons and foreign government official data, they had plenty to share. In return, the BVT gave Wirecard confidential, read classified, information that Wirecard and Marsala could use to further Wirecard's ambitions. The Austrian prosecutor's office has said some of the BVT employees were using Wirecard's access to the porn operator's financials to ascertain, quote, the solvency of said porn sites. And it was an employee of the same unit within the BVT who is suspected of having handed over four reports from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, including that report on the use of Novichok in Britain, those that went to Marsalik. So just a quick little reminder here of the background of Schellenbacher and Weiss. Schellenbacher was implicated in a big bad way in both the what's known as the Ibiza scandal, go look it up, where and in another scandal involving Ukrainian businessmen. But in this case, the FBO chairman and vice chancellor of Austria, Heinz Christian Strachse, allegedly received huge sums of cash from these Ukrainians. In fact, it was so bad in 2019, Strachse had to resign under threats of being charged for treason. Schellenbacher was the money man in between Straka and the Ukrainians. Now, Straka was known to have cash stockpiles that he called sports bag and backpack money that prosecutors indicate they believe came from the Ukrainians run through the FPO to launder. Okay, so hold all these folks just to the side for a minute because you're going to need to pull them back out in a moment. 
Let's head back to Germany for a moment and pick up on what the IC has found over the past couple of weeks. And don't worry, because as you'll see, this will lead us right back to Austria in no time at all. Okay, so first up, the German IC has come to the conclusion that perhaps Wirecard offers up evidence that, hmm, German governance of its publicly traded companies has certain, call them shortcomings. As they have so adroitly identified, neither the auditors auditing the financial statements, nor the supervisory authorities, and for that matter, not even the Deutsche Bourse, managed to prevent the Wirecard debacle. In fact, even the FIU appears to have struggled to stop Wirecard's active money laundering in any meaningful way. And note, have you noticed increasingly we are hearing the IC invoke money laundering as a crime committed by Wirecard, where hitherto it was always about market manipulation and fraud? It appears folks are finally waking up to the massive laundering machine that was Wirecard. Anyway, this has led to the IC to question if maybe, just maybe, this whole self-regulation approach Germany has taken, and that's the Corporate Governance Code, CGK, for Responsible Corporate Governance, is maybe mm, insufficient. Now, the CGK has, has only been enforced for maybe 20 years, long enough to inflict serious damage, but not so long as to be a way of life. As some IC members observe, calling it soft law doesn't actually confer any enforceable legitimacy. The IC has said this soft law term is, well, a little misleading since the CJK isn't actually law at all. There is no legal obligation by German companies to abide by the code whatsoever. The CGK merely sets forth expectations of, quote, best practices of corporate governance and makes helpful recommendations where there is legal leeway, but no mandatory regulations. So it's information, it's theory, and it's wishful thinking, but it ain't law. As they observed, analysis after the fact, always useful, Wirecard's corporate governance report was, quote, largely empty of content, leaving the IC to wonder if the current self-regulating regime is really suitable. Their words, not mine. The IC asked, should the supervisory board, from the perspective of the federal government, be able to directly access internal audits and compliance departments and their reports, say, like what they do in Switzerland and the United Kingdom? And thus, should they be actively supervising the executive boards of these companies? Hmm. As they pondered this, they summoned more witnesses for the hearings. Chiefly, they've been focused on the banks and on the loans to and out of Wirecard. Now, the IC had sought from the German government information as to the particulars of the interaction between Wirecard AG and Wirecard the bank. You see, Der Spiegel published a story last month observing how liquidity, Wirecard cash, seemed constantly flow out of Wirecard, particularly in the form of loans, and oddly, loans to third parties and quasi-affiliates. On one day alone in November 2018, Wirecard's management board managed to approve and release 500 million euros in loans or credit lines under the very vague description to push the MCA business. Remember the merchant cash advance fraud, Brazil, Turkey, etc. See episodes five and six as a refresher. Okay, so the IC noted in its questions to the German government, hmm, here's an example of some of these dodgy loans and 
we've got questions. That Gumo, remember James Henry O'Sullivan? Really too many episodes to count. That Gumo, a.k.a. Senjo Group, a.k.a. OCAP, had received as Gumo to, quote, a loan of 11 million euros from Wirecard Bank and which Wirecard AG thoughtfully guaranteed? The MP said, who signed off on this? Who thought this was a good idea? And remember O'Sullivan wearing his OCAP hat, and his chapeau wardrobe is indeed extensive. OCAP also received a loan of 115 million euros, also in 2018, and again, thoughtfully guaranteed by Wirecard AG. And again, the IC said, uh, what sort of loan template was Wirecard Bank working off of here? Who approved these? Did anybody bother to risk rate these credit transactions? There doesn't appear to have been any real collateral offered up. Huh? Can someone explain this to us, please? Now, we'll just step back and say, at the time OCAF received that $115 million, Carlos Hauser was playing MD of that entity, OCAP, with old O'Sullivan, old Hank in the background. Now, from the paperwork, it appears Hauser's wife, a Wirecard employee, approved the transaction. Now, Hauser had just taken over as head of the payment services provider, OCAP, only weeks having only weeks prior having worked at Wirecard in Turkey. And at the same time, his wife, Brigitte Hauser-Oxner, was over in Singapore approving all these loans. Hmm. So perhaps the IC would be better served looking for the proceeds of these loans, which of course were never paid back, by spending a little more time scrutinizing the Wirecard partner, Bijli Pay Asia. O'Sullivan was director of Bijli Pay for six years, from 2006 to 2015, along with, uh, remember, Arshan Mugararatam, you know, he of Citadel Corporate Services, Singapore, in detention, indicted on 15 counts of fraud, other financial malfeasance, all involving the falsification of monies. Citadel was supposed to be holding in trust for Wirecard Asia. Okay, RS, let's call him. Well, he was also director of Bishley Pay for eight months in 2015, overlapping with O'Sullivan. But of equal interest is Roy Philip Harding, who served as director of Bishley Pay 2011 through 2015, overlapping with O'Sullivan and RS. Only there are a few more facts about Harding that make him worthy of a second look. Harding, like O'Sullivan, is a British citizen, and like O'Sullivan, has ties to the Isle of Man. In fact, he still resides there some of the time. But Harding isn't just a former director of Bishley Pay. An email address on Bishley Pay's Singapore Companies Registry record links Harding to a company called OCRA Worldwide, Okra. Okra, still seemingly in operation with an office in Singapore, advertises and offers offshore services since 1975, they claim. Okra sets up anonymous offshore companies, trusts, and bank accounts and provides, quote, professional intermediaries to those who avail themselves of Okra's services. You know the rule, listeners. Always, always follow the money. Now, the IC also highlighted some other loans that left Wirecard's building. PayEasy, one of the entities in the Philippines owned by the now-possible shade Christopher Bauer, enjoyed some 270 millions in loans from Wirecard in just 2018 alone. Don't forget that 260 million that found its way to Bauer in spring 2020. 
Dating back to 2015, Wirecard bank loans went here, there, and everywhere. And oddly, it does appear that some may have actually been approved by, wait for this, folks at Boffin. What? Yeah, definitely more to come on this little tidbit of information. The high C let that just quietly fall into that testimony. We'll pick that up soon again. Did I mention the IC has voiced repeated skepticism as to the authenticity of Herr Bauer's untimely demise in the Philippines? They've repeatedly demanded the Philippine hospital records, asked who the pathologist was that examined the body, and sought information as to who exactly was in the hospital in Manila at the time he supposedly expired. So with all these loans and questions in mind, last week, the IC heard testimony from a collection of banks involved with enabling Wirecard. Now, several bank chairmen, including those of KFW, IPEX Bank, Commerce Bank, Bayern LB, Landesbank, uh, Bayern Wuttenberg, Goldman Sachs, and Deutsche Bank were summoned to testify. Now, throughout the week, all appeared to agree that When their respective institutions extended loans to Wirecard in 2018, they were at least aware of the negative stories being published by the the FT, although none mentioned the short sell reports that went back a decade. But all came to the same conclusion that in spite of the risky profile, so long as EY said Wirecard's balance sheets appeared sound, okay, lend that money out. Chairman of KFW IPEX, Claude Michalik, said, oh, yeah, well, and here's his quote, there were warning signs, and even as KPMG in April 2020 was noting Wirecard's struggle to locate vast amounts of cash, and I love this quote, Michalik said, that was an intense warning signal. (laughs) The bank was reassured because Wirecard management gave satisfactory explanations promising to expand their compliance and audit groups. Why is it when most of us tell our banks we promise to pay back a loan, they they want actual proof of our ability? Eh, sigh. KFW wrote off a 90 million euro loss. Up next was Marcus Kramer on the board of Bayern LB, testifying that his bank came to the conclusion between 2016 and 2018, it needed to part company from this lending consortium to Wirecard. Now, they'd only lent some 60 million euros, so they actually had the smallest exposure of the lenders. However, according to Kramer, Wirecard's inconsistencies kept increasing, and by 2018, the bank had reached the conclusion it was not willing to make a follow-up commitment of 150 million euros. Wirecard's business model from Bayern LB's vantage point just raised entirely too many questions and offered quote, less and less convincing answers. Commerce Bank, which had been involved with Wirecard since its inception, that's right, all the way back to 2003, by 2018 claimed they were feeling a bit queasy about Wirecard's what they called irregularities. They they investigated the FT stories themselves and found them to have merit, but still came to the conclusion that the alleged fraud being perpetrated by Wirecard wouldn't impede the company's ability to repay a loan. Huh? Then again, 
KFW's analysts thought Wirecard's unusually high margins were due to its digital progress business model. Christ on a bike. You can put the word digital in front of anything and people confer magical deeds upon the mundane. What is wrong with these people? Okay, back to Commerce Bank. In the spring of 2019, they determined to find a way out of their relationship with Wirecard, or so they claimed in the hearings. I say claim because it also came to light that at least one of the bank's equity experts was feeding confidential information from the financial world to Wirecard's management. Uh, okay. However, Commerce Bank told the IC the last straw in the relationship, clear evidence that Wirecard was engaged in money laundering. But it took until June 2020 to exit, quote, softly, their words, not mine. Why? Because they couldn't find a legal loophole to get them out of their contractual business relationship with the guard. All right, come on, cut them some slack. Some of you know extricating oneself from a long-term relationship isn't always easy. It may be time to go, but somehow the full process moves glacially. Too bad they weren't making the decision to terminate the customer relationship in another jurisdiction, say, like England. Because there in 2019, the High Court held in NV Royal Bank of Scotland that a bank's right to determine terminate a customer relationship without notice in exceptional circumstances covers a situation in which an authorized payment institution's accounts have been determined by the bank to be vulnerable to fraud and money laundering. Mm. Ah, well... Bayer's reach, Landis Bank, managed to withdraw from its relationship with Wirecard in 2018. But Commerce Bank, oof, what a difference a year makes. Unfortunately for them, like so many slow-moving divorces, this one was costly. Now remember, Commerce Bank had helped to initiate that substantial 1.75 billion euro loan to Wirecard spread across the 13 banks. When they collapsed, a 187 million euro loan from Commerce Bank was still on the books. And poor Deutsche, Deutsche Bank. All right, who am I kidding? They bring all this guano on themselves. I'm not even going to touch their latest misbehavior involving Spain and their investment services. Okay, during the IC hearings with the lenders, a rather, well, let's call them unfortunate series of emails surfaced between Deutsche Bank's supervisory board member, Alexander Schutz, and Wirecard's Marcus Braun. Yeah, after telling him he... After Shute telling Braun he's been a naughty boy, not even touching that one, he enjoined Braun to, quote, finish the Financial Times to stop their articles that are critical of Wirecard. Ugh. According to multiple media outlets, senior leadership at Deutsch uh, is unimpressed. Rather awkwardly, when MP Yen Zimmerman first raised the subject of the emails last week, whilst questioning Deutsche Bank CEO Christian Suving. Suving had to admit at the time he hadn't actually been aware of any of this correspondence. So there are reports from various media sources of subsequent terse conversations with Schutze, but Deutsche Bank finds itself in another difficult position. Not only are these personal relationships between executives from the various companies in the German corporate landscape where half of them sit on each other's supervisory boards. Yeah. But not really uh, is there much Deutsche can do about Schutze. Why? Like, seek his resignation. Because 
Well, his correspondence has raised serious questions about their bank code of conduct right when they're facing yet another scandal. I know, I promised I wouldn't talk about it, and are desperately trying to repair two decades of scandals recently passed. But you see, Schutz, he joined the board in 2017, and his mandate is due to run until 2023. He also sits on the bank's nomination committee, making him a hmm, pretty powerful actor in selecting new board members, including the chairman who has been reading him the Riot Act. Oh, and then there's this little fact. Schutze owns 17.4 million shares in Deutsche Bank, making him one of the 15 largest investors. Now, Schutze publicly apologized for his comments and has made it clear he does not intend to resign, unfortunately. But the IC took a dim view of the correspondence with Jens Zimmerman in a masterful understatement, saying it shed a rather bad light on Germany's largest bank. MP DeMasi suggested Deutsche Bank should review its compliance policy in light of what has become known about the relationship between Schutze and, well, Marcus Braun. Okay, so at the end of the week of hearings, KFW called Wirecard an, quote, unprecedented case of falsification. Commerce Bank claimed it was the victim of, quote, fraud unimaginable in its dimension. Somehow one isn't feeling a great deal of sympathy for these institutions. Now, in addition to the bankers, the IC summoned Lars Hendrik Roller. Remember him? Head of the economics department within the chancellery. Now, he was the one responsible for vetting the request for Angela Merkel to lobby with Xi, Xi Jinping to let Wirecard buy a Chinese payment company, Allscore, right? Episode 15, go back. Okay. And recall in a past episode, I gave you a detailed account of Wirecard lobbyist Carl Theodore Zu Gutenberg's efforts in, in this lobbying. Okay. Well, the IC has begun questioning just how much influence well-connected former politicians have and continue to have ongoings on and decision-making within the chancellery. Because as MP Lisa Paul observed at Roller's hearing, Wirecard didn't have just former defense minister turned econ minister turned lobbyist Gutenberg. Wirecard also had lobbying for it, the chancellor's former state secretary, Klaus Dieter Fritsche, and Hamburg former mayor, Ola von Bust. Now, listeners, tuck former state secretary, the chancellor Fritsche, in your pocket, because this story is about to get a lot wilder. Okay, asked if this was normal by the IC, all these lobbyists and, and these revolving doors. Roller said, well, I don't really know whether such a concentrated commitment of advisors in the chancellery is the rule or the exception. Hmm. Okay. Hans Michael Bach pointed out to Roller that even the purchase of a payment processor such, processor, such as Allscore in a, quote, totalitarian state, referring to the PRC, was potentially objectionable. After all, this industry is part of ubiquitous surveillance in China, was it not? Michael Bach helpfully pointed out to Roller, PRC government, business, linked, PRC rules, cover every payment processor, they're collecting data on the private lives of citizens, feeding a bag of the Chinese government. How could that be something the chancellery supported? Rewirecard's acquisition goal? Roller disagreed. The opening up of the Chinese financial market was just part of an investment agreement that the EU is currently concluded with China, except for it predates it by 
three years. According to the understanding of the time, he says, Wirecard's entry into the market entirely in line with German economic diplomacy. When asked to champion Wirecard, Roller said he asked the Federal Ministry of Economics, Finance, whether there were any concerns about commitment to Wirecard. He didn't get any negative information back. There were no serious problems. But then he admits, yeah, we didn't exactly, we, we don't, in fact, conduct any forensic examination of DAX companies before we undertake to promote a company in the chancellery. MP Damasi asked Roller again about the role of Fritschi, who was responsible for the intelligence services for Wirecard in the chancellery before joining Wirecard. Later, Fritschli would go on to advise, oh, I'm not going to spoil it. No spoiler alerts. Okay, so Wirecard is said to have cooperated with intelligence agencies around the world, says Damasi. What do you have to say to that? Roller testified that he was not surprised at the time that the former colleague had made contact. After all, there are many contact requests that come in from former colleagues. When the IC heard from Van Beust, he said he saw his work for Wirecard as a common form of policy advice. I'm committed to lobbying, he said. I don't think it's bad if it's decent and transparent. Transparent being the operative word. The main task of his lobbying firm, Buston Call, on behalf of Wirecard, lobbying around freeing up restrictions to online gambling. Quote, Wirecard wanted to participate in amending the gambling state treaty to allow some form of gambling. As remember, this is Wirecard's business model, right? Online gambling, which has been banned in jurisdictions around the world, it's, it's hurting the bottom line. So the gambling state treaty had been hanging in the balance in Germany since 2011. When asked by Tonka, Florian Tonkard, didn't you have concerns about the nature of Wirecard? Van Buse reported Wirecard was not initially perceived as a problem issue in his consulting firm. After all, in 2019, yeah, there were reports of irregularities, but it all calmed down. And when the bad news resurfaced in 2020, well, Wirecard CEO Burkhard Ley assured him, CFO Burkhard Ley assured him there was nothing serious about it and that such fluctuations were normal for such a fast-growing company. Roller went on to say, as head of the economics department, he regularly read press evaluations. He continues to, but he doesn't always know the complete news situation. What has emerged in the hearings this month still has the capacity to surprise and opens yet more rabbit holes into which we will dive. So here is a little more of the truth that slipped out in this hearing. Turns out Von Bust knew Burkhard Ley from joint work on an advisory board of a human resources consultancy. Remember I said they all share positions? Okay. Also in the chancellery, Von Bust was known to... Mr. Roller, Herr Roller, and he go back a ways. And in 2020, Bust wrote a letter to Roller on behalf of Wirecard. But then the testimony took a decidedly weird turn. MP Yen Zimmerman zeroed in on an email in which a Chinese company contacted Roller in order to get in touch with Wirecard. The email was sent through, quote, the wife of Dr. R, meaning Roller. And Roller himself stated that his wife was a housewife and did not receive any financial benefits for establishing contacts between Chinese and German companies. 
But he didn't deny that it was his wife who was contacted by the Chinese company. Yeah, contact established through his housewife. Repeated questions from MPs did not result in satisfactory answers as to what role a housewife was really playing in establishing contact between two international companies. More to come to that. More to come on that in a future episode. Okay, so now pull Claus Dieter Fritsche out of your pocket and dust him off. Go on, set him up on the mantle or the dashboard, because we're leaving Germany and heading back across the border to Austria. Why? Because Austria's parliament has also been holding hearings. That's right, they too are taking a hard look at their government ministries, foreign ministers as they relate to Wirecard, Jan Marsalek, and lobbying. In fact, some might say they're asking tougher questions than the Germans. Now, many of the questions I have asked have received zero response from the government, or all they get is, yeah, we're still building our investigation, or it's entirely too classified or embarrassing for the government to answer at this time. But despite many questions going unanswered as yet, the Austrian Parliamentary Committee has surfaced some rather intriguing information. For instance, Herr Fritschi, that's right, of the German Chancellery. Well, when he left to become a lobbyist for Wirecard, he took a second job as well. He had a contract as a, quote, consultant, air quotes, to the Austrian Ministry of the Interior. Oh, yeah, you just heard that correctly. The Ministry of the Interior, you know, the one the BVT sits under. Austrian parliamentarians have identified that Fritschi, he who was from 2014 to 2018 German State Secretary and Commissioner for the Federal Intelligence Services in Germany, from 2019 was an advisor to Kurtz's right-of-center coalition government and in particular, the then Minister of the Interior, Herbert Kickel, he of the far-right party, the FPO, in Austria. In fact, Fritschi was hired after the BVT scandal that I mentioned earlier. Fritschi's remit to help with the, quote, further development of the BVT. And in order to fulfill this task, he was provided with an office in the BVT and given free access throughout the building. Now, Austrian MPs asked of the government, and in particular the current Minister of the Interior, Karl Nehammer, were you or your ministry aware that Herr Fritschi worked as a lobbyist for Wirecard whilst working in the Austrian Ministry of the Interior? Just how many assignments did Herr Fritschi receive for con this consulting work in the ministry for two years? What exactly was he up to? Because they have him working there from 2017 to 2019, although the only thing that surfaced is a contract awarded to Fritschi's consulting firm, lobbying firm, to provide in, in dated February 1st, 2019, to provide, quote, strategic advice of the Federal Ministry of the Interior on the further development of the state protection authorities in accordance with an international model. For a nine-month period, remuneration, 71,000-plus euros, that inclusive. The advisory activities covered a wide range, and they're, they're mouthfuls, so I'll paraphrase. But they wanted to an analysis of the state protection institutions, those are intelligence police functions, based on his personal experience and his assessments, 
They also wanted current status, uh, their counterterrorism and planning operations, and support for the Ministry of Interior, public events, and development of greater protection authorities in Austria through strategic advice, uh, internal meetings, so on and so forth. Austrian MPs rightly said, hmm, well, in the course of this troika between Fritsche, Wirecard, and Fritsche working for the BVT and maintaining an office in the BAT building, who exactly did Fritsche meet with? Did he just happen to be in contact with Herr Weiss? In fact, come to think of it, was the then Minister of the Interior, Herbert Kickel, aware that Fritschi worked as a lobbyist for Wirecard whilst working in the Ministry of the Interior? Was Kickel or his cabinet aware that Mr. Weiss had close contacts with Marsalis? Now let's just pause for a moment and appreciate the gravity of all this occurring under then Minister of the Interior, Herbert Kickel. Now remember, quick, quick, high level, Austrian politics, for the past 18 out of 20 years, one of the two far right-wing parties has always been in charge of Austrian intelligence and the Ministry of the Interior. FPO, OPV, have always staffed the Ministry of the Interior position. And with that in mind, and remember that those are the parties that are tightly aligned with Russia. With that in mind, some of the Austrian MPs next said, we'll give you listeners pause. And this is a quote. I refer again to a statement by the U.S. mission in Vienna, which analyzed the right populist Freedom Party's leadership of the Ministry of Interior, saying, the Freedom Party's pro-Russian stance should and give us pause when it comes to sharing certain types of sensitive information. For example, we are now feeling an acute lack of trust from Western partners in the case of the fugitive Marsalek. Austria does not receive any information. We work in complete isolation now. We are isolated in the areas of intelligence and economic espionage now because of this tight alliance with Russia through the FPO and OPV. But the link between Marsalek Wirecard and the Austrian Ministry of the Interior does not stop there, because we don't just stop with Kickel. You see, in late December, the Austrians surfaced, uh, December of 2020, the Austrians surfaced a photo taken May 30th, 2017 of Jan Marsalek and then Austrian Minister of the Interior, Wolfgang Sobotka, at a reception at the Austrian embassy in Moscow. Now, during the Ibiza scandal a couple of years ago, Marsalek's name had surfaced. Sobotka, on the hot seat and about to lose his job from the scandal, claimed he'd never met Marsalek. Fast forward to last month, when MPs surfaced this photo taken in Moscow. Now, I can't do it justice here, but Marsalek and Sobotka are literally elbow to elbow, seated together with drinks, grinning like mad fools. Sobotka is and was the president of the Austrian National Council, that is, the lower house of Austria's parliament. He's speaker of the house, in essence. With respect to this photo with Marsalek, Austrian MPs said, quote, this incident is particularly irritating because the president of the National Council, Sobotka, stated that that evening, 
in his questioning in the committee looking into the Ibiza scandal that he could not remember whether Jan Marsalek had been present that evening. It therefore seems necessary to clarify why Sopka denies acquaintance with Marsalek. So now the Austrian Parliamentary Committee is asking, what other dates did Sopka have during the Moscow trip? Who else did he meet with? Has the Austrian embassy or foreign ministry organized meetings with Russian authorities for Marsalek? Are you aware that Sobika visited Moscow or the Austrian embassy again in December 2018? Oh, did Sobika meet in the Austrian embassy in December 2018? Oh, and we couldn't help but notice that now Chancellor Sebastian Kurz, then foreign minister, was in Libya at the beginning of May 2017. So, uh, government, do you can you give us information about who traveled to Libya with him? Were there any follow-ups by Kurtz and Marsalek on this trip? Hmm? We can't help but notice that in the last couple of months, investigative reporters from the Austrian daily papers, the Standard, the Press, and the news magazine Profile, have been uncovering Marsalek's rather extensive network. And, said the MPs, this network seems to stretch from senior former politicians to the Russian military intelligence. And in the middle of this network, there's an employee of the Austrian Ministry of Defense. And no, listeners, you didn't mishear that. We add yet another Austrian official to this roster, Brigadier Gustav Gustanov, a one-star brigadier assigned to the Security Policy Directorate at the Austrian Defense Ministry. Now, he works in the Directorate for Security Policy at the Ministry of National Defense and is also the BMLV liaison officer to the National Security Council, or at least he was until February 2020. He also worked in his capacity in the Directorate for Security Policy on cooperation with the FPO-affiliated Institute for Security Policy, the ISP, which is sponsored by Russia. Now, this institute is part of the investigation that was tied to the Ibiza affair and the alleged bribery of right-wing federal government officials. Now, Gustana is mentioned several times in documents relating to Marsalek's questionable construction project in Libya and is also represented in the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society. Go back to the earlier episodes if you've forgotten them. And all of that was used to interact with Marsalek. So Gustenau, who was also involved in this construction project in Libya, even signed a contract with another party, Killian Kleinschmidt, and that was a company that was uh, who, who uh, this individual uh, runs a company, Innovation and Planning Agency, and was commissioned to develop the concept for this project in Libya in return for twenty thousand euros from the BMLV. Gustenau was at a planning meeting in April 2017 at a Munich restaurant with Marsalek. And in February 2018, was in Jan Marsalek's villa in Munich, strategizing on this reconstruction project in Libya, titled Stabilization and Migration Management in Libya, New Approaches to Security and Organized Crime Control. It had been commissioned by Gustenau via the Innovation and Planning Agency, and was financed by the BMLVS and BMVIT. So what do we have? Another Austrian former official 
related to the Ministry of the Interior, Wolfgang Gottringer, who from 2003 to 2007 was deputy head of cabinet in the Ministry of the Interior, run by the OVP, and his consultancy lobbying group, Repuco. Now, it's become clear that Marsalek received, as we've discussed this before, various loans and support from a variety of Austrian ministries, 120,000 uh, Austrian control banks, 20 million against the Libyan cement company, right? All of this being paid out to Marsalek. Well, when Gatringer was deputy head at the Ministry of the Interior and Ernest Strauss, Strasser was interior minister, they had another joint venture, again, through the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society, and that helped put this funding in place for Marsalek. <laughs> so we have Gottringer and Gustenau cooperating through Repuco and the Austrian MPs investigating this chummy current and former politicians want to know, huh, just how many trips did Gustenau make to Russia, to Libya, to Abu Dhabi? Because conveniently for all involved, Gustenau, together with his wife, Elizabeth Gustenau, have another company, Geifnet, which is active in the field of security and seems to have some contracts in Libya. Now, Gust Elizabeth Gustenau is listed as the contact person of Diamond Aircraft as well, and more on that to come. I think we're going to have to do a whole special episode dedicated to spouses of these schemers. Anyway, as the MPs noted, the goal was clear to almost everyone. Marsalek is up to his ears with all of these Austrian officials or former officials who are now running consultancy lobbying groups. In fact, they even surfaced email traffic between Gustenau and Andre Chirpian showing a familiarity between these two. Remember, uh, Chirpian is the Russian uh, that Marsalek was tied to with the Libyan project. But of equal importance, there is addition to surfacing of communications with all these folks through various agencies from classified files and information, including even Simtex, with Marsalek. So with all these private companies and their Machiavellian scheming and lobbying, one wonders how they found time to govern. That's right. It's all about personal enrichment. Not good. It's not about the good of their respective countries. You know, they're just prime examples of how government, governance failures, financial malfeasance, corruption are allowed to flourish when the revolving doors between government and business open to allow undue lobbying influence. I mean, not only is public trust undermined, but transparency out the door, integrity lost when the governed and the governors slither back and forth between each other's nest. Now, I know it feels like I pick on Germany, and, and in this case, it's probably warranted what with Wirecard. But, you know, there were cozy relationships uh, between the German uh, automotive industry and members of government and parliamentary secretaries that, that fed the low enforcement rate on the diesel uh, gate scandal. And we, we won't get into that right now and all the overlaps, all these different German uh, ministers. But it's a pattern that confirms why the OECD nearly a decade ago called upon its members to embrace and implement prin principles for transparency and integrity in lobbying. I mean, just recently, the last gasp of the Trump, Trump administration, October 2020, 
an executive order was issued. The EO created Schedule F civil servants. And under the EO, so designated civil servants can be moved in positions for which their statutory job protections are eliminated. How does this square with transparency and lobbying? It's the flip side of the same coin, but it still erodes independence. Schedule F employees can be fired at will and then replaced by political appointees, such as those from a specific industry who will better have lighter hands on regulatory enforcement or be more sympathetic to certain private interests rather than the greater public good. The EO removed the idea that U.S. federal workforce could be political, neutral protectors of the country and its citizens' interests. And alongside the EO creating Schedule F employees, another EO was signed, one that whilst on the surface appeared to restrict some forms of lobbying, but only extended the cooling off period, at the same time removing the ban's application to members of Congress. In the UK, they claim to have regulations governing when former government ministers and officials can move into private sector roles that would see them lobbying their former colleagues. Only unfortunately, the agency tasked with the regulation of the rules, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments, OCOBA, has no powers of investigation and no means by which to sanction those who violate the rules. A recent parliamentary committee report on OCOBA identified it as toothless and ineffectual. In fact, from the committee's perspective, ACOBA has actually helped further erode trust in British public institutions. You know, the author, Jane Jacobs, has highlighted that every society need two, needs two forms of behavior, guardians and commercial, but that these two functions must remain separate and distinct in order to keep the society just and effective. When they're blurred, terrible things begin to happen, and trust in institutions as well as private companies begin to erode. And if anything... The German and Austrian examples here with Wirecard are extreme versions of everything that can go wrong. And with that, we'll close the revolving doors of Wirecard for the moment, because revolving doors lead to the corridors of corruption, and we'll see where this takes us next week. Tom? Mikhail, uh, I hope my tear-filled laughter did not come through <laughs> on the recording. I could not control myself. Um, you know, you could not write this as a novel. No one would ever believe it. It's a good thing it's fact. It's a good thing it's fact because, right, nobody would believe it if it were fiction. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again in the new year. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.